What a privilege it is this afternoon to open up the word with you, my brothers, and to encourage you in the Lord. I um, have been in academia all of my adult life. I was working on degrees for 22 of those years, (laughs) and I've been teaching for 20 years in the areas of biblical hermeneutics and homiletics. And I know for some of you, that sounds, you know, that many years in academia sounds like a prison sentence but I love it, except for when I have to preach in front of my students. And uh, several of them said they had their evaluation forms out. That stinks. So it was was commencement day of 2011, and one of my faculty colleagues asked me if I would be interested in doing some pulpit supply at their church. Uh, Their pastor had resigned the year before, and they were in need of a preacher. So on June 5th, I preached my first message there, and then I kept doing pulpit supply for the next year and a half, on and off, mostly on. They asked me if I would consider candidating for the full-time position of pastor, but I told them I really had a strong burden to continue in uh, my role as a college professor. So the search continued until a young man and his family were eventually called to come and pastor that church at the beginning of 2013. At that time, my wife and I actually transitioned from the church where I was serving as a non-staff elder, and uh, we'd become so sort of intertwined with this church and had come to really love the people. We had a desire to get behind the new pastor and to see this church step into a new season of its life. Well, it didn't take long for tensions to emerge between the long-standing church members and the new pastor. How many of you guessed that already? (laughs) You kind of knew where that was heading. All right, you've been in pastoral ministry too long. These tensions escalated and uh, things blew up. Things got worse and worse over time. And it was commencement day 2014, exactly three years after my colleague asked me to do pulpit supply when I received a call from one of the deacons saying that the senior pastor had resigned. But the damage was already done. Uh, Nearly half of the church left, and they weren't coming back. The question was asked of me, would I step into the pulpit? Would I fill the pulpit this Sunday? And I said, of course. And what do you say to a church on Mother's Day after they've just heard that their pastor has resigned And they look around and half of the body is gone. So I preached a message from Romans 8 on God's good purpose in our pain. And the church asked me if I would continue filling the pulpit that summer, a summer that I was actually finishing my dissertation. And near the end of the summer, they approached me about the possibility of being a part-time pastor. Well, at that point, I felt like, The Lord had led me and my family there. He'd given us a love for the people. He'd given me credibility with the people. And really it was in their best interest to have a shepherd that they knew and trusted to help them through this difficult season. So I went through the process and the church accepted me as their senior pastor that August. And on the Sunday I was voted in, I preached the message from Acts 2.42 entitled a first century ministry paradigm. And in that message, I asked these three questions. What will I do when I assume the pastorate? What will I emphasize in our church's ministry? What activities will I give priority to? And fresh and eager me, 
argued that our church must be word-saturated, others-oriented, gospel-centered, and God-dependent. And that all seemed so simple in those early days of ministry. I was, all, I was full of you know, youthful optimism and idealism. I mean, I was in school for 22 years. I read the books on pastoral theology. I got a pretty good grade in the class. I'd been a non-staff elder at a very large church for five years. You know, I had observed for 20 plus years. Now it was my time to step in and do this. Well, little did I know how many distractions there would be. And little did I know how difficult this would be, especially as a bivocational pastor. I was considered a part-time senior pastor. I don't even know what that looks like. No, I'm sorry, I can't meet with you. I've already clocked in for 20 hours this week. Many of the key volunteers had left. There was no staff. The church secretary left with the church files. A number of the deacons had left. So those early days looked like me squeezing in sermon prep around teaching and grading and family life. It looked like or felt like I was doing everything, making, printing, folding bulletins setting up chairs, keeping the temperature at church just right, making the PowerPoint slides, presiding over the whole service, preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, counseling, trying to keep people from leaving, more people from leaving, and dealing with the emotional hits of those who had. All the while, I was trying to be the inspiring leader in a crisis and keeping the morale high. Evangelism, leadership development, meeting with the fire department to check on the fire alarms, being there for HVAC repairs, Saturday men's prayer breakfast, mentoring at the local elementary school, demands and distractions. So the theme of this conference, Focused and Faithful, really, really resonates with me. What in the world was I supposed to be doing and how am I gonna keep doing the right thing and stay on the right track? How am I gonna be focused and faithful in ministry? And I've talked to enough pastors since to know that I am not alone, that my situation, my experience there actually wasn't unique. And maybe you came to this conference and you are a bit frazzled. You're torn in so many directions and I get it. And I'm not here, I struggle. You know, I'm not here to to heap shame on you or add to your burden, But but I do wanna encourage you. I do wanna remind you of certain fundamental priorities in faithful and focused ministry. So that said, I'm going to put some, some good biblical pressure on you. And I want you to know, just like 1 Peter 5, when Peter charges the elders to shepherd the flock of God, he comes alongside them and he does so as a fellow elder. I want you to know that I'm coming alongside you to encourage you in this, not to come down on you. In fact, that's one of the reasons I took the time to tell you a little bit of my story. But it's imperative at a conference like this that we do more than simply sympathize with how distracted and burdened we all are. You know, it could be easy for us all just to kind of, you know, get together and say, yeah, I'm, I'm burdened. I'm, you know, it's terrible for me too. But we have to call ourselves to live up to the role of the shepherd as outlined in the New Testament by the grace of God. It's critical to, in light of ministry demands and distractions, to keep coming back to first things, to what matters most to biblically defined priorities 
in ministry, as Paul outlines them in our text this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Go ahead and turn there with me in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I'm not sure that I'm going to say anything this morning or this afternoon that you haven't heard before. Many of you have probably preached through this text. It may be a favorite of yours, as it is for many preachers. You could be the one up here speaking. Yet God continues to speak through his word, and I'm confident that he intends through this text to encourage some of you, to encourage you that you're on the right path and that you need to continue. But I'm also confident that God intends to correct some of us, maybe that have gotten off course, even if just a few degrees. And today's message is really designed to realign us to priority ministry activities. So let's take a minute and pray. Father, we ask for your help and blessing as we study this text in its context. I pray that you would strengthen these dear brothers in the work. Use this message to do just that. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So in this message, I'd like to encourage you to be focused and faithful in preaching. Focused and faithful in preaching. To not be distracted, to not be diverted away from fulfilling your ministry. Preaching the gospel must remain at the top of your ministry priorities. As you are faithful to persist in this, please be assured that your great shepherd, your chief shepherd will bring life and vitality through that word. So I'd like to encourage you to be focused, first of all, on preaching, okay? And then to be focused in preaching and then to be faithful in preaching. So focused on preaching, our ministerial priority. And then focused in our preaching, that's our gospel centrality. And then faithful in preaching, I've got two ideas here. First of all, getting it right. That's our hermeneutical integrity. And then keeping it right. That's our uh, dispositional inflexibility. <laughs> okay. Now, for the sake of my students, you know, normally I would say, you know, try to have parallel points. And, um, you know, sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. And um, dispensational, or uh, it's not even dispensational, it's dispositional inflexibility. Um, I think it works, and uh, I think you'll see it works, but, but that, was a, that was a tough one. Ministerial priority, gospel centrality, hermeneutical integrity, and dispositional inflexibility. So focused on preaching, focused in preaching, and then faithful in our preaching. So my big idea is, is this, pastors, men, stay focused in your ministries on preaching and in your preaching, stay focused on the gospel. Make sure you get it right and keep it right, okay? Stay focused on preaching and in your preaching, stay focused on the gospel. Make sure you get it right and keep it right. So let's take a look at focused on preaching our ministerial priority in 2 Timothy 4. 
So you're looking at the last chapter of Paul's last preserved letter. And I want you to notice the tone of this section by looking at verse one and then by looking at verse six. Verse one, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And now drop down to verse six. I'm ready. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. So I think then you can see there's a tremendous sense of urgency and a tremendous sense of solemnity in Paul's tone here. With his impending death in view, he addresses a young man who will be left behind in the fight, his son in the faith, Timothy, and he solemnly charges him. So verses one to five could be titled Paul's final charge, or we could say Paul's urgent, solemn final charge. And I'd like to argue that Paul's charge to Timothy is Paul's charge to us today. Now we're not in first century Ephesus, right? But there's nothing that's unique to that historical cultural context. In fact, Paul is going to argue at the beginning of chapter three that the context in which Timothy found himself is one that would be a recurring reality throughout the church age. So I want to appeal to you to hear this urgent, solemn, final call as if it were a charge to you in the 21st century in Detroit or wherever you came from. So let's survey the contents of Paul's charge in verses two through five. These four verses contain nine imperatives. In other words, the charge consists of nine commands. In verse two, you have the first five, and then verse five contains the last four commands. So let's just kind of run through those. Verse two, number one, preach the word. Command two, be ready. Three, reprove. Four, rebuke. Five, exhort. Six, be sober-minded. This is verse five. Seven, endure suffering. Eight, do the work of an evangelist. Nine, fulfill your ministry. Now, it's important to note the command that heads the list and the one that concludes it. Don't worry, I'm not gonna cover all nine of these. But let's start with the conclusion. Paul ends by charging Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And I would take that as a summary of the entire charge in verses one to five. In other words, Paul is saying, I charge you to fulfill your ministry. What ministry, right? Like that's what I needed to know as a young pastor. Answer the first eight commands. With his impending death in view, writing to his ministerial mentee who's left behind in the fray, what comes to the forefront of Paul's thinking? What is at the top of the list? What is at the heart of a faithful fulfilling of ministerial responsibilities? What is it? Preach the word. So man, there's an urgency, isn't there? There's an urgency and a priority given to this task of preaching. It represents the apostolic heartbeat for faithful ministry. Now, there are other things that we must do. Preaching is not our only task, but it is a priority task. Is that the way we view it? Or have we become like Martha, distracted by much serving, by our preparations, by doing the work, worried, upset about many things, but unlike Mary who had chosen the good part, what was better? We need to get clarity on this. 
We can't let contemporary pragmatic church philosophy influence our thinking here. And I understand there's a little bit of a tension that, that I feel because I realize there are some people in here who associate pastoral ministry exclusively with pulpit ministry. And those kinds of people need to be reminded of the other aspects of pastoral ministry. But I'm speaking to men who are also pulled in every direction and who are tempted to neglect in various ways, to various degrees, this fundamental priority, critical ministerial responsibility, preach the word. This is the way Christ shepherds his flock, isn't it? With his voice, through means of faithful under shepherds who take the word of Christ and serve as stewards and servants of that word for the benefit of the flock. But what exactly does Paul have in mind when he tells Timothy to preach the word? Well, as you probably know, that word translated preach there is keruso, a verb meaning to herald. A kerux in the ancient world was a herald, somebody who would make public proclamations on behalf of a king. He was a messenger proclaiming important news. In fact, some of our newspapers today are called heralds for that reason. So in telling Timothy to preach, Paul is telling him to make public declarations, to proclaim aloud. And uh, if you just would turn for a second, hold your finger in 2 Timothy 4, turn to Mark chapter 1. There's a beautiful non-ministerial illustration of this term that I think helps us visualize what Paul means when he says preach. In Mark chapter one, uh, verse 42, we read that Jesus heals a leper out of compassion for him. But then in verse 43, it tells us, Jesus sternly charged this leper and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. To talk there is our word translated preach in 2 Timothy 4.2. King James has publish. The New American Standard has proclaim. The Net Bible has announce, right? He, he began to talk freely about it, to preach, to publish, to proclaim this news. Now notice the next phrase in verse 45 that is parallel to the verb talk. He went out and began to talk freely about it. And now here's the parallel to spread the news. And the leper's proclamation was so public in nature that verse 45 records that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So preaching in this sense is making a public announcement on behalf of a king, spreading the news. This is what I was saying. Pastors are under shepherds and they are representing the will of another, the chief shepherd. And where do we find this will expressed? In his word. And that's why it's critically important that we get it right. That we get the message right. Elders shepherd the flock of God, Peter says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And what about ministers who don't? What about ministers, as we heard about in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, who substitute the word of the cross for worldly wisdom? What works? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 
Each one's work will become manifest, manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. It's critically important that we get the message right. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but preaching is making a public announcement on behalf of a king. And what was it exactly that Timothy was commanded to preach or announce or declare? Well, this is where I want to bring in numbers two and three, focused in preaching. So not just focused on preaching. Preaching is this priority ministerial task. Number two, focused in preaching. That's our gospel centrality. And then faithful in preaching. That's our hermeneutical integrity. There's actually a relationship between those two, our gospel centrality in preaching and our hermeneutical integrity. So notice Timothy was charged to preach what? The word. So imagine me telling one of my students, you know, they come up to me, they say, Professor McGonigal, what should I preach? And I say, the word, the word, brother. Well, it's almost too general, isn't it? It's almost too vague to be helpful. But we can't be vague and undefined about what it is that we as preachers are supposed to be preaching because we're not representing ourselves. When Paul says the word here, he is assuming Timothy will know exactly what he's talking about based on what he's already said. This Greek word translated word here occurs seven other times in 2 Timothy. So what word is Paul referring to? So what I'd like to do is just do a little Bible study and look at those three, look at three of those references in particular and then draw some conclusions. So would you turn back with me to chapter one and look at verse 13. What word does Paul have in mind and would Timothy have understood in this particular context? Chapter one, verse 13, Paul says, follow the pattern or the standard of sound words. There it is. You have heard from me. So here the word occurs in plural, words. And notice they're words that are described as sound because they promote spiritual health, spiritual well-being, which by the way means that to deprive your flock of these words is to deprive them of health. So together, these sound words comprise the pattern or the standard that Timothy is to hold fast or to retain. And notice where they come from. Follow the pattern of sound words you heard from me. These are Paul's words. These are apostolic words. In other words, there's a standard by which to measure the content of our preaching. It's the standard of the apostles' teaching. And when it's preached, when it's spread about, it promotes spiritual health. So this needs to become the measure by which we compare and evaluate our preaching and our ministries, not our denominationalism, not our theological systems, but the apostolic teaching, the apostolic word. Nothing else will nourish and sustain and cause our congregations to thrive like the apostolic word. Look over at chapter two at the next reference and verses eight and nine. Chapter two, verses eight and nine, where Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring, 
offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for I am suffering, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word, there it is, the word of God is not bound. So remember what we're doing. We're trying to understand what Paul had in mind when he said, preach the word in chapter four, verse two. Here, the word is described as belonging to God. It is God's word. It is a word that cannot be bound. It is a word for which Paul suffers, he says. But what exactly is this word belonging to God that is not bound and is the reason or the cause for Paul's sufferings? Well, he identifies it at the end of verse eight. See that? What is it? My gospel. So I want you to try to follow the logic here with me. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which gospel I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And if someone asked Paul, hey, Paul, is the gospel then bound with you? Paul's response is, no, the word of God, notice not gospel, but word of God is not bound. So for Paul, the word of God is just another way of saying what? In this context, yeah. It's just another way of saying gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, my gospel. So conclusion, this word belonging to God that cannot be bound, that's the reason for Paul's sufferings, is the gospel that Paul preached. It's the apostolic teaching of chapter 1, verse 13, that is the standard by which we should assess our ministry of the word and that is critical for the spiritual well-being and health of the body. So I wonder if you connect the word with the gospel in your mind. When you read 2 Timothy Timothy 4.2 and Paul says, preach the word, do you think gospel? Do you see yourself as a minister of the gospel? Note Paul's reference there to Jesus as the offspring of David, right? In other words, this this gospel that was Paul's gospel that he received by revelation of Jesus Christ has roots in the Old Testament and is connected to the overarching Bible storyline, isn't it? Timothy, preach my gospel. So men, our priority is to preach the word, but I would argue that even more specifically, the priority within the priority. So remember, we're focused on preaching as our ministerial priority, but within preaching, we're focused in on gospel centrality. I would argue that the priority within the priority is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as part of this storyline of scripture culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection. It means preaching the Old Testament. It means preaching the covenants and promises of the Old Testament. It means showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants and promises, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. This is the apostolic gospel. And this is the word that we are called to preach. So one of my first series as part of this revitalization effort was simply, what is the gospel? We've got to get clear about what the gospel is because this is at the heart of what it means to preach the word. Now look just a few verses later, verse 15 in chapter two, where Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word. There it is, the word of truth. So here the word is characterized by truth. It can be rightly handled. It should be rightly handled, but by implication, um, it should not be wrongly handled. In fact, if you look at the surrounding context of verse 15, the whole context is one of a mishandling of the truth. Look at verse 14. Paul says, remind them of these things, Timothy. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which do no good, but only ruin the hearers. So you see that language there again, charge them before God. That sounds like chapter four, verse one. But in this case, the charge isn't positive, is it? Preach the word, it's negative. Charge them before God not to do something. And what were they not to do? They were not to quarrel about words. Why not? Because quarreling about words instead of preaching the word does no good. In fact, in contrast to the sound words of chapter one, verse 13, which promotes spiritual health, a quarrelsome type ministry only ruins the hearers. Look at verse 16, where Paul says, but avoid irreverent babble. Avoid irreverent babble or profane chatter. According to BDAG, this is, this is empty talk that is devoid of Christian content. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Paul uses it as the opposite of guarding the deposit that was entrusted to him. This is the opposite of that. Profane babble or chatter, devoid of Christian content. Look at verse 17. This kind of empty talk will spread, Paul says, like gangrene. That doesn't sound very healthy to me, does it? And then Paul goes on and calls out two offenders in this area, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says, verse 17, they have swerved from the truth, specifically of the resurrection. They did not handle the word of truth rightly. They swerved from it and the results were disastrous. They are upsetting the faith of some. All that to say, men, it is critically imperative that we get it right we're focused on preaching. And as we preach, we're focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also this faithfulness aspect that we're faithful in preaching in the sense that we have hermeneutical integrity. The spiritual well-being of those that we are called to shepherd is at stake. And the approval of God is at stake. Do your best, Paul says, to present yourself to God approved. <laughs> a worker who has no need to be ashamed, verse 15. Or as Paul will say in chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge, right? Preach the word. And we saw this morning, we heard from 1 Corinthians chapter four that, that as servants and stewards of the word, our ultimate assessment comes from God. So here's where I'm going to put some good pressure on you. This is why we should be pushing ourselves as ministers of the word to read and study in the areas of hermeneutics and homiletics, especially hermeneutics, books on general hermeneutics, how to interpret the scripture generally, but also books on special hermeneutics, 
So whenever you're you know, doing a series, let's say you're preaching a series through Acts, build in some reading time to really study out how to interpret that kind of literature. Uh, build in some time to think through the challenges and the pitfalls that come with that kind of genre. Don't just read the commentaries. The commentaries are the product of their hermeneutic. Read and study in the area of biblical interpretation because it is imperative that we get it right. And this is why we would do well to study and prepare in community, if at all possible. I attend a yearly workshop in Greenville where some pastors get together and they basically, they pick a genre. This year it's prophecy and apocalyptic. That's going to be fun. Um, And they work through some worksheets, some interpretational worksheets, and they think through how they would preach individual texts. And then we break up into groups and we sit around as pastors, as teachers, and we just try to help each other think through how to best interpret the, the word and then how to get it across. Get it right and then get it across. And that kind of collaboration between men in ministry is so, so helpful and necessary. And that's why we should invite and welcome feedback on our sermons. And I know that's really hard, isn't it? Because many of us already feel like imposters. And many of us already recognize our sermons as subpar. And to get feedback, especially if that feedback is critical, can really add to our sense of despair. So we have to have this mindset of, constant growth because ultimately it's not the criticism that comes from the pew, but it's the assessment of heaven that we're concerned about. We want to get it right. And so if it means opening ourselves up and being vulnerable to input from others, we take it so that we can make progress in our preaching and teaching. So when Paul says preach the word by preach, he doesn't mean, you know, give our own spin, give our own take on the scriptures. One writer says that when the word of God is faithfully taught, the voice of God is authentically heard. When the word of God is faithfully taught, the voice of God is authentically heard. That's what we want. We want to represent what the apostles taught. So remember, I made the case that when Paul says preach the word in 4.2, he's assuming that Timothy will know what he means by the word, what he means and what he doesn't mean based on what he's already said. So let me try to package up that little tour through those three passages, if I can, and say this. There is a standard by which to measure the content of our preaching. There is a standard. It is simultaneously God's word and the apostolic word. Or to be more precise, the gospel of God or the apostolic gospel. And because these words come from God, because they're words of truth, unlike false words, unlike empty words, which ruin, these are words that are sound words that promote spiritual health. And therefore, it is imperative for any minister wishing to fulfill his ministry and be approved by God and not ashamed to get these words right as a steward and then get them across as a herald. Now, would you turn with me to chapter three of 2 Timothy? Timothy was to preach the apostolic word or gospel, but that apostolic gospel was built on other previously revealed words from God. 
And that's the immediate context of Paul's command in chapter four, verse two, to preach the word. So if you look at verse 10, Paul commends Timothy in verse 10 to, um, he commends him for following his teaching. And he urges him, verse 14, to continue in what he had learned and what he had firmly believed. Well, what was it that he had learned? The sacred scriptures or the sacred writings, or as verse 16 puts it, scripture. So in this context, the sacred writings or scripture most assuredly refers at least to the Old Testament. In fact, William Mounts in his commentary on the pastorals writes, while graphe can refer to any writing within the context of the New Testament, and also 2 Timothy, it must refer at least to the Old Testament. This is the case, he says, with every other occurrence of graphe in the New Testament used some 49 times, end quote. And he argues that graphe refers to both the Old Testament and the gospel message. For the latter, its oral proclamation and perhaps parts that were written and disseminated by this time are to be included. So all that to say, when Paul, several verses later, tells Timothy to preach the word, he has the sacred writings, he has the scripture we call the Old Testament in view, as well as the apostolic gospel. So I wonder if we could argue then, bringing those two together, that Timothy was to preach the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel, or as Paul and the other apostles preached it, as they themselves learned it from Jesus. In other words, I'm trying to get some more specificity to what Paul means when he says, preach the word. What does Paul have in mind? These are the words, these are the writings, Paul says, that are able to make people wise unto salvation. These are the writings that Paul says are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And why are they profitable? They're profitable because they come from God. And because they come from God, they're words of truth. And because they're words of truth, they promote spiritual health. So how are we doing in this area? Do we look at the scriptures, the entirety of the scriptures, as the Christian scriptures? Are we preaching the Old Testament and if so, from what lens or through what, um, from what angle are we preaching the Old Testament? I think there's a connection, in other words, between focused, uh, our focus in preaching being gospel centrality and our faithfulness in preaching our hermeneutical integrity. It's that gospel-centeredness then becomes the key for our understanding, our right reading and understanding of the totality of Scripture. And I think this is another area where we need to give some extended thought to what it looks like to preach the apostolic gospel from all the scriptures. And I don't think this is something that we can afford to dismiss as being too difficult or something that we can safely ignore. Is it challenging to preach the gospel from cover to cover? Yes, in certain texts, in certain sections, in certain places. But that's why it's important for gospel preachers to be men of prayer to be men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, to be men who are diligent in their studies. And the more of this that you can get this whole Bible approach and methods of preaching Christ and preaching the gospel from all of scripture, the more of that you can get while you're younger, the better, because once you enter into ministry, it becomes increasingly more difficult to really set aside time to, to do deeper dives into areas of biblical theology and these kinds of things. 
But at the same time, it almost takes some practice, doesn't it, to preach and understand what you don't know, right? So I would encourage, especially you younger guys, to preach from the Old Testament. And when you do, seek specific feedback from people to get perspective on how you handled the word and specifically how you handled the word in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How did you get there? Now, I don't know that we're all gonna come to the same conclusion about exactly what that looks like. That's why you have books out there called Four Views or Five Views on Christ in the Old Testament. But with his impending death in view and in view of the appearing of Jesus Christ, Paul says, preach the word. And when he says, preach the word, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, I'll be presenting a workshop on this topic, preaching Christ from the Old Testament narratives, from Mephibosheth to Messiah. And I'll be diving into a little bit more of this at that point. But we've looked at focusing on preaching, our ministerial priority. We've talked about focus in our preaching, gospel centrality. We've thought about faithfulness in preaching, our hermeneutical integrity, getting it right. I want to end by considering our dispositional inflexibility this doggedness and persistence in doing just this, preaching the word. So notice in verse two of chapter four, in discharging his duty to preach the word, Timothy was to have a certain disposition. He was to be ready. And that verb means to present in readiness to discharge a task. It means, or can be translated as be prepared. Now, when specifically was Timothy to be ready to do this, to preach? It says in season and out of season. Now, those six words in English are actually two words in Greek. And both of them have the same root, meaning time or season. And the only thing that distinguishes them is their prefix. So the phrase in season could be translated good time or convenient time. And the phrase out of season could be translated not good or inconvenient time or inconvenient season. So basically what Paul is saying is regardless of the character of the times, good or not so good, Timothy was to be ready. He was to have this disposition to preach the word. Now, what is Paul referring to specifically? In other words, what would constitute a good time for preaching the word and a not so good time for preaching the word? Look at verse three. For the time is coming. See, there's a time. The time is coming when people will will not endure sound teaching. So how would you describe that time or season for preaching? Good or not so good? Not so good, right? Paul goes on to say, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In other words, there are going to be times, there are going to be seasons where people will be impatient with the truth or as it were allergic to sound doctrine. But in spite of their response, Timothy was to do what? He was to be persistent in preaching the word. Now that's really interesting to me because what Paul says here, I think is very counterintuitive. And it runs contrary to the way contemporary ministry is often thought out because I think our minds run this way. People are not listening. They're not tolerating this kind of ministry anymore. And so therefore we need to do what? Fill in the blank, right? 
And I remember feeling that pressure early on. Church situation after the split was already tenuous, right? We couldn't afford to lose another family from the standpoint of church morale, from the standpoint of our budget. And so I can understand how easy it would be to succumb to those pressures and begin to think that the customer must always be right, that we need to be more relevant, that we need to talk about issues and concerns that people have, that we need to downplay theology and doctrine in our messages, that we need shorter messages and more time devoted to personal illustrations and stories because that's what people like. That's what they enjoy. But it's here that we can get off track, right? thinking that we must be doing something wrong if people won't put up with our ministry of the word. But Paul is saying just the opposite here. He charges Timothy to preach the word during good times. I mean, take advantage of those good times when they will endure sound doctrine and preach the word during the not so good times when people refuse to endure sound doctrine. That's the one constant. Doesn't matter what the times are like, preach the gospel. And according to Paul, the ultimate gauge for preaching is never, never the people's response. How do I know that? Look at verse one. I think it's significant how Paul begins this section. He charges Timothy to preach the word in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead. And my preaching mentor, Mark Minnick, would often say, the living and dead preachers. That's who he's talking about. So ultimately, I'm not asking the question, how are people responding? That's not what shapes my ministry methodology. I'm not asking what pleases them ultimately, but rather, as Paul puts it in chapter two, the soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him. But what's wrong with pleasing people, right? What's wrong with establishing ministerial practice especially the preaching of the word on the basis of what people like and don't like. Look at verse three. Paul says the time is coming when people not endure sound doctrine. And here's where he sort of discloses for us what motivates their aversion to healthy teaching. They have itching ears. They want their ears tickled. They want to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Fascinating stories, philosophical speculations, anything but the truth. So it shouldn't surprise us that people are more prone to embrace error than they are to embrace truth. I don't know if you get those emails from church members where you're just scratching your head, thinking, what in the world? You watch about five seconds of the YouTube video and you're thinking that's, that's more you know, conspiracy theory than scripture. Why is it that people have a propensity to embrace error? Well, because sound doctrine doesn't harmonize with people's natural personal desires. It doesn't tickle their ears. It doesn't satisfy their persistent gnawing internal desire for self-gratification and self-promotion and self-indulgence. So sound doctrine doesn't mesh with the prevailing spirit of our age. And you can go back and look at chapter three. We won't take the time to do that, but Paul gives a description of what those not-so-good seasons look like. But he calls Timothy in that context to be persistent in this priority ministry activity 
which is to preach the apostolic word, preach the gospel. And he says in verse two, the third, fourth, and fifth imperatives that there are gonna be seasons again that people will not endure biblical preaching because it has that corrective nature to it. And Timothy is gonna to have to reprove. He's gonna to have to convince people of their error and he's gonna to have to rebuke. He's gonna to have to tell them to stop thinking like that, stop living like that. He's gonna to have to exhort to appeal to them to respond rightly. This is that dispositional inflexibility, right? This dogged determination and persistence to keep on preaching the word in spite of the response. So 2 Timothy 4 makes it clear that preaching is to be a priority activity and it's to be carried out regardless of its reception and approval by man. The scriptures are the words of God and as such, they are the words of truth. They are sound words and they promote spiritual health and wellness. There are words to no profit. Paul talks about those in the second chapter, verse 14. Those kinds of words lead, he say, to the subverting of the hearers. Those words lead to their ruin. So is that what we wanna give our flock from week to week? Give them words that tickle their ears, that jive with their desires, that interface with the spirit of this age, but are words to no profit and that will stunt their growth. We have to learn to discern between what people want and what people need. And if we truly love our people, we will give them what they need, even when they don't want to hear it. So don't, my brothers, be distracted or diverted away from fulfilling your ministry. What is that ministry according to Paul? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in all the scriptures that must remain at the top of your ministerial priorities. Are you being faithful and persistent in this? Be assured that the chief shepherd will bring through that word, through that representation of the word, vitality and health and well-being to your people. I learned that there were many burdens and challenges during those years of revitalization. It was, it was hard. It's like renovating a kitchen. You got the whole thing torn up and you can't see the finished product. And so preaching becomes an act of faith, a weekly act of faith. Stay focused on preaching. And in your preaching, stay focused on the gospel. Make sure you get it right and make sure you keep it right. Father, we've heard this charge from Paul and we, we wanna fulfill our ministries. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We need your grace and we need your help. Keep us from swerving from the truth. Keep us from missing the mark. Help us to encourage one another in this regard to find out what it looks like to cut it straight. Find out what it looks like to preach the apostolic word. Find out what it looks like to preach Christ from all the scriptures. And we pray in his name, amen.